tonight, and we'll see you back here again next week. Tonight, the ground war begins. Israeli tanks roll into Gaza. What will America do when casualties mount? Is hostage rescue possible? War at home. Say Israel is worse than Nazi Germany. Hamas supporters plan a major rally in the heart of Brooklyn's Jewish community. Why do you rip it off? Will they be confronted by New Yorkers like this? New York City, you don't have a to touch that Too close for comfort. This Chinese fighter buzzes an American B-52 bomber. How the Chinese and Russians are exploiting war in the Middle East. And for adults only. Warning, explicit material enclosed. The Virginia candidate exposed for her racy online videos gets hit again. Why this mailer from her opponent might actually come back to haunt him. Breaking news at this hour. It is 7 p.m. in Maine, 48 hours after police say Robert Card shot and killed 18 people in a rural town. They still cannot find him. You're seeing live pictures of the command center there. We're going to take you inside the air, land, and sea search trying to find that trained survivalist inside 12 million acres of pine trees. That's a little bit like looking for a single ear of corn in all of Iowa. How Card is staying one step ahead of 200 FBI agents, state police, and even Coast Guard helicopters uh, that are right now on his trail. And it is 2 a.m. in Israel, where the Gaza border has now been breached by Israeli troops. Live pictures there, three weeks almost to the hour after Hamas's surprise attack, Israeli Tanks backed by airstrikes and helicopter gunships quite literally went over the berm. All right, welcome to the Ferris Show on television. First tonight, and this is what Israel is up against, trying to destroy a ghost right now. Israel's stated goal of destroying and eliminating Hamas is a little bit like trying to kill cockroaches. It is an unpleasant, difficult, and oftentimes very tedious business. We're going to start tonight showing you what Israel's ground invasion looks like. They're beginning right now up in the north, Beth Honin, that they're trying to encircle here. So they're coming in from three different areas here. They're going to encircle that. Hamas has a ring of steel around their stronghold, which is Gaza City, that goes a little bit like that. At some point tonight, it is very likely that the Israelis will try and cut the Gaza Strip north to south to begin to isolate Gaza City. Gaza City uh, is the most important part for Hamas. In these first few hours, the biggest problem for the Israelis is something that they created themselves. We'll show you what the Israelis are looking at. This would be inside Israel. This is the fence line. And this was what was called the buffer zone, defensible space that was built all around Gaza, about a half a mile deep. Uh, This was supposed to give the Israelis a clear line of fire. But now as their tanks go across, it is Hamas that has the clear line of fire 
from all of these homes, each one of which can have anti-tank weapons, each one of them can have snipers for ground troops, each one of them can have surface-to-air missiles to try to take out helicopters. Uh, It is a nightmare for any army trying to invade right now. And we are getting ready for what will be the worst urban warfare since World War II, bar none. And we know that Hamas uses human shields. They have taken it one step further now. We know that Hamas uh, has told residents in Gaza City that were ordered to evacuate. They cannot go south of this line. So you're going to have the Israelis who are going to try to come in and cut it. And you're also going to have Hamas fighters here uh, just south of Gaza City. Just in the past couple of hours, the Israelis ahead of their ground invasion said that they had found Hamas's main military headquarters right under Shifa Hospital, uh, which is all the way in Gaza City. It's about three or four hundred yards off of uh, the ocean, an extraordinarily difficult place for the Israelis to get to. Obviously, what they would like to do is bomb it, but they can't because Hamas quite literally built something under the hospital. We're going to show you at some point uh, the Israeli uh, satellite imagery that shows exactly where the Hamas bunkers are. We're going to take you underground, though. This is how the Israelis are, are trying to get inside, and they're showing you under the hospital right now is the whole labyrinth of tunnels and of Hamas war rooms, part of a much, much larger system inside of Gaza, and they call it the Gaza metro system. These are all tunnel systems, hundreds of miles all throughout. This is the north part. This is Gaza City. All of these connect. So Hamas is able to move equipment, ammunition, reinforcement, fighters, able to evacuate fighters back to the hospital, all underground. Think about this. It took months for American forces to take Mosul and Fallujah. Hamas much more dug in and has a much stronger support among the population. With us now, Glenn Ignazio, retired Air Force Special Operations Commander. Glenn, as you're looking at this map, and this is every uh, defender's dream and obviously every uh, invading army's uh, nightmare, what does it tell you, three weeks, uh, that the Israelis have had to launch special operations into Gaza? Do they, have they decided now that everything that can be done with special operations has been done and now they have no choice but the full ground invasion? Well, I think what they're going to do is a special operations always is going to be one of the big proponents to go forward and, and be as covert as possible. But one of the things that you're seeing is you're seeing communications that are impacted. So uh, the IDF is definitely going to jam communications and you're seeing that occur across the city. The biggest thing is, as we mentioned about preparing the battlefield, that's the biggest thing that's happening with the aircraft because I know the airstrikes are going on rather intensely. And what they're doing is they're disrupting the command and control centers, they're disrupting their, uh, you know, their their ammunition storage areas, and trying to get into any entry points of those tunnels. But as you mentioned, it's very difficult to get that big command and control center underneath the hospital without causing damage. I, I think these are significant probes to see where Hamas is, so IDF can plan that and go in uh, very effectively. Yeah, they're talking about months-long operations. When I was uh, there in the Middle East and we were talking about ground invasions into Gaza, it was always talking about uh, a couple of days, maybe a week or two. Um, and, and the Israelis are in a, a catch-22 situation, right, because you've got 200 hostages likely underground. We're going to look there. So we've got the Gaza metro system. You can see how many hundreds of miles of tunnels. We'll take you inside one of these tunnels. This is actually video uh, from Hamas, and you can see some of these tunnels aren't big enough Uh, to be able to turn around in and they go uh, from building to building. So fighters can can launch attacks from one building, go down 
over to another building and then pop back up. Um, that's something that, you know, obviously the U.S. dealt with in Vietnam. It wasn't ever something that we dealt with in Iraq. Uh, how is it possible even to fight against an enemy like that? Yeah, it's possible. But as, as mentioned, I know we've talked a few times, is it's got to be very methodical because it literally becomes a, a 360 war. What, what I mean by that is, you know, usually you have a nice front and your forces are moving forward. The problem with this is as each of the troops are moving forward and clearing every building and, you know, you got you got those buildings up high. So they're going to be shot, being shot at from above. But you have the tunnels where after you pass an area, you're going to have to occupy it. And the reason for it is if somebody has a tunnel that you happen to miss and pops out behind you, you got to make sure that you have the tro- troops to carry, your, you know, cover your sick, cover your back. And that's going to be very difficult in this area. So it's going to be very interesting of how IDF takes care of this. But it's as, as mentioned, it's a very dangerous, very dirty area. You don't know where these tunnels are going. You don't know where they're popping out at. And they could be hidden underneath anything. So it is a mm-hmm. tough, dangerous event that IDF is facing in this in this tunnel issue. Yeah, D D day now, probably H hour plus two or three hours. They went in just as darkness began. And the Israelis have an advantage, right, uh, Glenn? It is that they can operate at night with combined arms in a way that uh, Hamas can't, although they've gotten better at it. I thought you said something interesting. You check your six. But with the way Hamas has tunnels, now they have drones that can drop ammunition and ordnance vertically. Three, you know, your six becomes 360 degrees. It's not just watching your rear. We now have the graphics working. I want to show you Shifa Hospital. Um, so this is Gaza City, one of the most densely packed areas uh, in the world. So uh, the Israelis are now trying to contend with exactly who is a civilian and who is a not, because we know that uh, the Gazan population does support Hamas. Then we'll look at Shifa Hospital. This is provided by the Israelis. Um, the hospital complex, and you can see, um, you know, next to... Uh, the maternity ward is the underground complex entrances next to the chest and dialysis centers, another underground complex. Uh, is it even possible to get in to a get in and get troops on the ground into that that isn't a suicide mission? Well, it's a, it's a challenging situation, but I wouldn't say it's a suicide mission. It's going to be very interesting about how that hospital is structured and who's in there. I mean, the, the one thing that there's no major air defense that Hamas has. So Israel can own the skies like they have with the, the penetration and the attacks with the F-16s, but also the helicopters. They can use the helicopters to infiltrate their troops so that they're not hitting booby traps on the ground. They'll be able to use the helicopters that are attack helicopters with the sensors to be able to take individuals out. But they're going to have to get into those environments to clear it. Like I said, they could use a bomb, but the, the I, I'm sure Hamas is the hospital loaded with patients just to use that as human shields. So it yeah. is possible, but it's extremely dangerous, as you alluded to. Is, I wouldn't say it's a suicide mission, but it is probably one of the most dangerous close-quarter battles you can possibly get into. Yeah, and to think about the fact that there's a couple of hundred hostages. Obviously, we'll hear a lot about the Palestinian civilians. Uh, we don't hear much anymore about the hostages that are being held, uh, likely underground there or certainly underground Um, in the the metro system, uh, as it is called. Uh, Glenn, it'll be a long war. Uh, We're going to have you back to talk about it. Thank you. A little bit more about the war at home uh, against American Jews by pro-Hamas sympathizers. Some major rallies are planned around the United States. We'll have more on that a little later in the show. We're now 48 hours into the main manhunt as police search for the gunman that killed 18 people in Lewiston, Maine. We've learned new details at a press conference earlier this evening. They have lifted the shelter-in-place orders, except and have allowed 
hunting in most of Maine, although they have prohibited it in four towns because of uh, the issues of gunfire and what people might be able uh, to mistake gunfire for, and the police want to be able to search the woods and not have to worry about hunters. Businesses will open in four towns tomorrow. Police have received over 530 tips, 70 witness statements. The search continues by land, air, and with helicopters, and still, no sign of them. It's only 114 miles to the Canadian border from Lewiston, Maine. Police divers are searching water near Lewiston. A water search has been underway all day. Divers joined the manhunt over a vast and largely rural region of rain, of Maine. 12 million acres. Take a look at this map that shows the bodies of water just around the area where Robert Card was last seen and where he ditched his car. Two major rivers converge and then dump into a large bay out to the Atlantic Ocean. Out-of-state dive teams are also coming in to try and look for him. We continue to learn more about Robert Card. He's considered armed and extremely dangerous. Card was also a firearms instructor, recently trained by the military. And according to law enforcement, uh, he reported hearing voices and threatened to shoot up a base and behaved erratically before spending two weeks at a mental health facility last summer. Former FBI Special Agent Tracy Walder is with us now. Tracy, 200 FBI agents, hundreds of state police, local police, on and on and on and on. Uh, the way it seems as though if you don't get them in the first, first couple of hours, chances go down, takes longer, the perimeter widens. Now we're at, you know, 48 hours. He could be anywhere. And who knows how much time he's had to plan this. Well, thank you for having me, Leland. I think you're absolutely right. I think the key that you really focus on is how much time he had to plan this. I believe, and I could be wrong, though, that he really did take some time to plan this. This is someone that did attempt um, to threaten a military institution. This is also someone who seems to be hitting targets that are important to him. The bar, the bowling alley, these are all places around where he lived and that he probably went to at some point. And the fact that he ditched his car really close to that that waterway, to that river, I think is also indicative of the fact that he was either planning to go someplace else or he was quite frankly planning to kill himself. So I think this is someone that really planned this out and he truly could be anywhere I suspect maybe going in the direction of Canada if he is on the move. Look, it would make sense, right? And you you would move away from the ocean because you can be sort of hemmed in there and then they would push him uh, farther uh, towards the ocean. So if they, they thought they had that opportunity, you'd go north to where you've got 12 million acres of forest. Uh, you've got survivalist skills. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the police were asked about this, about the border with Canada. Take a listen. There's no uh, expectation at all that there's going to be some kind of a border checkpoint scenario. Why not? I thought that that was an interesting statement because from what I understand is that BORTAC, which is the the basically militarized version of Border Patrol, has been surveilling the area. So I'm not sure if they're surveilling it for something else or if this is unrelated. I'm not sure why. It seems to be the easiest thing to do. I've worked with the Canadians a lot. Um, When I was at CIA, they're very easy to work with. They're very eager to help us. So I'm not... I'm not certain why he would say that unless unless he thinks that Mr. Card has killed himself. Yeah, that I heard that the shelter in place orders were lifted. It seems as though they're kind of taking the pressure off. Um, There's reports that there was a note found 
Uh, I guess you could think about that being a suicide note, and it's, it's been fairly common in history for people who engage in this kind of behavior and murder large groups of people to then kill themselves. What's confusing to me, though, um, is they haven't found a body, and it seems like an awful lot of um, confidence in just finding a note from somebody to to do all this, to allow hunting, to allow people in the woods, to complicate any kind of infrared search, on and on and on, just based on what may be in a note. I, I just want to say I completely agree with you. I'm very surprised, um, to be honest with you. The, the most surprising thing is that they are allowing hunting. This isn't, I'm not here to talk about guns, but you're really complicating the matter. When you have SWAT yeah. out there, when you have the FBI out there, you're now making them potentially targets. It's not that hunters would hit them on purpose, but now you have that added sort of factor that you have to put in there in terms of danger to them. So I'm very surprised because this is an area where people do hunt. It's very much expected. This is the culture and that's okay. However, you're really putting uh, first responders and searchers in danger when you allow that. I understand that we can't shelter in place indefinitely. That part I understand. Right, you know, I, I, you know, I, mean, I, I just want to put a button on this. And you, know, you think about, look, Vermont, very liberal state. A lot of guns in Vermont. People go out hunting. That's how they feed their families. Um, the, the, that's the culture there. Maine, also a liberal state. People hunt a lot of moose up there. They have a lot of weapons. They know how to use them. But all of a sudden, you've got hunters uh, in the woods with weapons. You've got uh, well-armed, as they should be, uh, SWAT teams, uh, FBI SWAT teams, HRT, on and on and on. Uh, how do you distinguish between good guys and bad guys? It's gonna be, and, and all the hunters know there could be a bad guy out here as well. It just, it, it, it's difficult to figure out how that's not cre- just sort of creating a very combustible situation. It's highly combustible. I would think at a bare minimum, they would kind of put a pin on hunting for just the time being. I do get that as part of the culture and I respect that. But for right now, I really think people would be on board in this community for that because I'm sure they want to find Mr. Card or at least find his body and do so safely um, for those searchers and for those first responders. So that piece I'm I'm very, very surprised about. Yeah, and you think about this in in a way, uh, both for Card, uh, it's a little helpful, but also for the for the searchers, balmy weather for fall in Maine. How long that lasts, um, we don't know before the winter sets in. All right, Tracy, it's good to see you. Thank you very much. Appreciated your help tonight and last night as well. Coming up next, has the electrical vehicle revolution ground to a halt? New signs Americans just, well, don't want to plug in their cars. And China sends a message to the United States with its fighter intercepting a U.S. Air Force B-52. How exactly will America respond to just this latest test by Beijing? Democratic presidential candidate in waiting, Gavin Newsom, loved showing off his $160,000 electric vehicle during an overseas trip to China earlier this week. He wants EVs to save the world, evidently, from climate change. It's time to move forward with an oil-free future in California. We see that bright light, and California is going to make sure we ignite it for the rest of the globe. Unfortunately for Gavin and the future of electric vehicles, automakers and consumers just don't see it that way. Ford just became the latest automaker to postpone its $12 billion investment in electric vehicles postponed. 
This is a day after Honda and General Motors pulled the plug on a $5 billion joint venture. They announced just a year ago they would make EVs more affordable. Not so fast. You also may remember earlier this year, Ford announced an ambitious plan to roll out new EVs before realizing over the summer nobody wanted them. They weren't selling. This is all despite President Biden's big investment of our money, $7.5 billion into charging stations, $10 billion into clean transportation, $7 billion into battery components, and expanding tax credits for all electric vehicles. Jim Meggs is here, senior fellow for the Manhattan Institute. Uh, look, corporations like to make money. They like to make things that sell. Is there any explanation for them pulling the plug on all these projects other than EVs don't sell? That's the explanation. You know, for at least 15 years, car makers have been talking about this electric future, partly because they want to be in sync with the U.S. government and European governments that that want them to go in this direction, and partly listening to some of the people on Wall Street who've been pushing more green investments. But none of this really works if the customers don't show up. Disadvantages of EVs. And look, I, I borrowed my sister's Tesla for a while. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. So I, I, when somebody puts a picture of me online after this segment says, hey, you drove a Tesla? I did. I enjoyed it. But it's pretty, there's some issues, right? Limited range, which is an enormous one. Um, if you want to take it on a road trip, it's a real pain in the neck. Longer charging time, battery degradation, EV climate control, uh, in-car electronics failures, charging station infrastructure. A lot of people are saying that other than the Tesla charging stations, they're just not working. This is what I want to talk to you about, though. The current electrical grid transmission capacity, even, even those on the left who are EV enthusiasts will tell you uh, that America's infrastructure isn't ready for electric vehicles. And I guess what I'm wondering is, What's going to happen with the the force of wanting electric vehicles to come online? Um, and at some point, I guess what? The Biden administration just keeps subsidizing them and a lack of charging infrastructure and electrical infrastructure. Well, it's not just charging infrastructure. It's also the power grid itself. You know, if we're really going to electrify everything, as a lot of climate activists uh, want us to do, we're going to need to double our supply of electricity by 2050. And a lot of the things that the same people who are pushing for electric cars are also pushing for a grid that runs almost entirely on wind and solar, which actually makes the grid less reliable. So we're Hmm. coming to kind of a moment of truth here where we're creating new demand for the grid without really uh, building the power capacity that we need to to power all these uh, these cars in particular, but also heat pumps, stoves, all these other things that, that they want to run on electricity. All right. So, Jim, I guess the other issue here, right, is that at some point you can just mandate all this stuff and or you can subsidize it to the point that people will be, you know, OK, fine. If you want to essentially give me an electric car, make it half the price of a of a gas powered car, whatever it is, um, then what happens? Well, the, the problem is that even with generous subsidies and these mandates to try to reduce the uh, sales of internal combustion, you know, gas and diesel vehicles, they're still not catching on 
I mean, don't get me wrong. EVs are great for the people who like them. It's, and, and sales have been, until very recently, have been growing rapidly. But for most people, it's a second car or a third car. It's kind of a luxury statement that's wonderful yeah. around town if you, if you can charge it at home. Uh, but it is, uh, it, as you say, it's not very convenient for, for most people in the country the way they use their cars right now. So at the price they are, most people can't afford a $53,000 second car that they're not actually going to drive as much as their primary gasoline-powered car. And it says a lot that now you're seeing sort of the attempt to make EVs more affordable, if you will, more more purchasable for first cars. Uh, people are saying no because they, they have the other issues um, involved. This is a great conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You too. All right, coming up next, pro-Hamas rally is coming to Brooklyn. Perhaps the protesters will be met by these New Yorkers who do not take kindly to tearing down posters of the Jewish hostages. Then don't rip that down. You are doing something. You're offending us. Yeah, you are. When you throw that on the floor, you're littering the city. In a minute, I'm going to litter the floor with you. Tomorrow, pro-Hamas marchers will bring those chants to the epicenter of America's Jewish community on Shabbat, no less. A flyer calls for flooding Brooklyn and marching about a mile from Crown Heights, where much of New York's Orthodox Jews live. From the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea means wiping out Israel and replacing it with a Muslim state run by Hamas. That's what the chant means. Intifada calls for the popular violent uprising with the sole purpose of killing as many Jews as possible. These are marchers calling for the mass killing of Jews. It's that simple. They're celebrating the mass killing of Jews. They are pro-terrorist marches. And they will be in New York tomorrow. Even the NYPD appears worried. They remember the 1991 Crown Heights riots in the same neighborhood where mobs beat 38 and killed one Jewish man by smashing his skull in. Tom Ruskin's here, former NYPD detective in charge of crisis management for the city. Uh, It's good to see you, Tom. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering what's going through the NYPD's mind right now as they're they're watching these large groups form. How do you how do you how do you keep this from becoming violent? So there's no better police department trained in how to manage demonstrations than New York City Police Department, where they have specialized units that just deal with demonstrations, along with patrol officers and specialized other units. So what they're doing tonight is they're gaining the intelligence from everything that they can glean about this demonstration. They're working with the leaders, the supposed leaders of the demonstration, to find out what they want to do. And they will coordinate tomorrow's response and how they deal with it uh, based on what happens on actually on the street. I, I, I hear you. I hear you, Tom. And 
you say the, the leaders, it's one thing to have a demonstration where you're asking for something. It's another thing to have a demonstration in the neighborhood of people who you're chanting to kill. Um, those are those are very different things. And I'm thinking the NYPD didn't even have the ability, really, to keep order during the Black Lives Matter protests. Okay, there was there was widespread looting, there was ransacking, and that was violence focused mainly on property and the police. If you have those same kinds of crowds, and it's the same people, turn on Orthodox Jewish families out for a walk on Shabbat, we're going to have some really terrible situations tomorrow. Yes, if that would happen, you'd have a different different type of situation. But the police department, knowing that this is going to happen, is in the preparation stages of corralling that area. They are from very familiar as someone who was there in '91, which I was on the first night of the when uh, Daryl Camby got hit and killed in Crown Heights, which led to the riots over the next three days to a week. The police department has learned a lot and has trained a lot. So, yes, you can't control every single situation, but you prepare for every situation the best way you can. Do you think they have the order? So much of this comes down to what the orders are, right? Because uh, the the New York Police Department could have taken care of the BLM riots, but they were told not to stand down, let them let them loot. That was the that was the order in Baltimore during the Freddie Gray riots that I covered Um, and happened in Washington, D.C. as well. A lot of cities in America. Uh, and I think about the protests around the country where this is going to happen. Baltimore, Maryland tonight, Yonkers, New York tonight, Portland, Maine uh, tonight, Omaha, uh, Flagstaff, Asheville, North Carolina. Tomorrow, a whole long list of places. Um, pretty incredible uh, in terms of what's happening. So I, I guess my question would be, do the, the, does the police department in, in New York, and then extrapolate it out, have the the wherewithal, yes, you've indicated that, but do they have the orders and the rules of engagement that allow them to take care of this and protect people? As you very smartly and wisely asked, what is the difference between this administration and de Blasio, who was during Black Lives Matter, who did give those orders for the police to stand down? I believe that Commissioner Caban will do everything necessary to keep order in the city of New York and allow the police officers to do what cops have to do. If they have to make arrests, you saw it last week when they demonstrated in Brooklyn, when they demonstrated in in Manhattan, and they didn't follow orders and block the streets, they were subsequently arrested. Hmm. And I think you'll see that tomorrow. And I think you're going to see a very good show of force by the police department making Hmm. sure that the Jewish population in Williamsburg and Crown Heights is not bothered on their holiest of days during the week, Shabbat. Yeah, there's one thing to not be bothered, right? And America enjoys the First Amendment. Uh, It's the right to say things even that make my blood boil, but I'll defend my death the right for you to say them. 48% of Americans 18 to 24 support Hamas. Uh, that that's different than supporting a ceasefire or standing up for the Palestinians. That's supporting violence. And I'm wondering what you're hearing from your old NYPD intelligence folks about their fears, not of the entire march being filled with people who are willing to carry out those threats, but you don't need an entire march. Well, the police department is only interested in maintaining order at a march and a demonstration and to keep possible rival sides apart. They don't listen to the rhetoric. They don't judge of who's saying it 
because as you allude to, we have First Amendment rights. They are really strictly watching to make sure that nothing happens that gets out of control. And if it does, they will suitably take care of it. I am. That's what I hear today from my NYPD colleagues. All right. Fair enough. Tom, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Obviously, we'll be watching through the weekend uh, as well. We'll talk soon. As we predicted overseas, the Chinese are taking advantage of America's military focus on the Middle East. What you're seeing on your screen is a People's Republic of China J-11. That's the fighter jet based off of stolen U.S. technology. The U.S. government tells us that they buzzed a U.S. Air Force B-52 bomber. The American aircraft was conducting routine patrols in international airspace. The Chinese got within 10 feet uh, at those speeds. That's milliseconds of miscalculation for a collision over the South China Sea. It happened at night and in bad weather. Iran's mischief in the Middle East now requires the attention of two aircraft carrier battle groups. China loves that because they then can't be in the South China Sea. And despite an American counterattack on Iranian militia weapon systems and depots in Syria, Iran's militias tried to attack a U.S. base again today. The only guy who's been relatively quiet these days is Vladimir Putin. There's a reason for that. He oversaw a nuclear test, hosted a delegation from Hamas, and of course is just fine with the world's attention away from his war in Ukraine. The Kremlin, though, pushed back on a rumor that he had expired over the past week. Mark Twain said history does not repeat itself, but it will often rhyme. And it will again rhyme today. For tonight's ceremonial first pitch, and please welcome the President of the United States. It was just weeks after 9-11, then President George W. Bush threw out the ceremonial first pitch at Game 3 of the 2001 World Series. Secret Service demanded he wear a bulletproof vest under the FDNY fleece. He warmed up in the underground area of Yankee Stadium for a few minutes, stood on the top of the mound, and delivered a perfect strike. Fast forward 22 years. President Bush will be taking the mound again tonight, throwing out the first pitch before the Texas Rangers team he used to own plays the Arizona Diamondbacks in the World Series opener. That's in about a half an hour. Mr. Bush likes to note that it's 77. He is younger today, 14 years after he left office, than either President Biden or former President Trump. Continuing coverage of the tragedy in Maine, we still don't know why the shooter did it. And with a killer on the loose, that's becoming an increasingly important question. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. So much for sending your kids to go get the mail in Virginia. Your kids can't open the mail, not, of course, because of bomb threats or anything like that, but because of porn. The Virginia Republican Party made several thousand flyers and sent them to voters' houses marked 18-plus only. 
and contained images pulled from online sex shows performed by Susanna Gibson. Gibson's a Democratic candidate for the state's House of Delegates. The election will decide who controls Virginia state legislature. Seen as an early indicator to 2024, that election is in about 10 days. All right, Vice President, restoring integrity and trust in our elections, formerly of the Trump White House, May Malman is with us. Um, I thought Republicans were against pornography. Well, okay, the pictures are not pornographic. And they were, I think, very influential. So after hearing about Susanna Gibson's selling of her sex acts online for money for her campaign, uh, 56% of Virginia voters said that she should drop out. And that number was higher among women. And that number was higher among black voters. So this is very important information to voters. I just, you know, we're a pretty uh, loose society, I guess, but... Selling sex acts hmm. online pain money really is is maybe one step too far. You know, it is it is 2023. Come on now. I mean, it's just sort of the continuation of politics. Uh, here is one of her campaign ads. Take a listen. I'm a mom and a nurse practitioner. When I walk through this door, it's never about politics. It's all about what's best for my patients. This is what I think is kind of interesting. And you said it was higher among women that, who are saying she's going to drop out. I'm not going to dispute the polling. But what I think is interesting is that none of the traditional feminist movement types and all of the Me Too folks and everybody else, none of them came out to defend her and said, hey, look, you're just shaming her because of what she did, which you can make a decision about it, but trying to shame her is wrong. No one's defending her here. I think it's fascinating. Well, everyone likes a victim, and I think that she had not quite achieved victimhood by making money off of the things that she was doing. Um, But I think that, you know, because now the Republican Party has sent out these flyers, there is an element of victimhood. They're saying, oh, that you know, Virginia uh, uh, criminalizes revenge porn. This is revenge porn. It does not fit the statute. But... Yeah, I think she needed to more uh, thoroughly fit fit the victim before you can go out and defend her. No one defended President Trump with for his, uh, I guess, uh, friendship with Stormy Daniels. So there are some people that just aren't victims. In May, there are some people who are able to very delicately deal with some very sensitive topics, which you have managed to do. Uh, with a plum. So thank you very much. And now we put up that picture. It is wonderful to see you this weekend. Uh, Have a great time. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, Leland. Yes, ma'am. It's good to see you. Sun up in the Middle East in just a couple of hours. And there are thousands of Israeli soldiers right now uh, fighting for the survival of their country against a terrorist organization. And what is most scary is that tomorrow,